Someone called Harold uh, Camping has been in the news recently. You may well have heard on the news about this preacher from the United States. Uh, his name is Harold Camping, and on Christian radio and on billboards around the world, he's been saying that the Judgment Day will begin on the 21st of May, 2011. He's been predicting a giant earthquake uh, that will mark the start of the world's destruction beginning on that day, 6 o'clock in different time zones on that day, uh, such that by the 21st of October of this year, all non-believers will be dead. Uh, now just imagine for a moment uh, being one of those many people who, who have actually believed Harold Camping. And think for a moment, as uh, you're preparing for that day, how that would, how that would change your lives. Uh, quite a bit, I should think. Uh, would you bother to clean your teeth? Uh, would you bother, what would you do about your pets? Uh, many things perhaps. Uh, Robert Fitzpatrick is a retired uh, transport worker in New York and he took it all very seriously. He spent $140,000 on advertising in that run-up to the deadline. Uh, well, the 21st of May uh, 2011 was, of course, yesterday... According to the BBC News, Harold Camping hasn't been available for comment. Well, let me introduce you this evening to a much more credible prophet than that, a prophet in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist. Now, like Harold Camping, John is trying to prepare us for something. To be prepared is half the victory, said Cervantes. Be prepared is the slogan of the Scouts Association. It's a very average and forgettable song in The Lion King, and it's what Matthew wants to provoke us to be tonight. Be prepared, says John. Before anything else, be prepared to change your minds. And what I hope we're going to see tonight is that Matthew especially wants us to change our minds about the future. But I also want us to see tonight that we can be sure, we can be absolutely sure that Matthew very much unlike Harold Camping, uh, gets it right. Uh, let me see if I can persuade you about that. Take a look with me at what John says first. Change your mind. Verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. To the beleaguered people of Judea and the surrounding area, and through this gospel, to us here tonight, John says, repent. And by that he means, change your mind. Uh, now we do need to tread a little carefully here. You may well wonder at this point whether that command, uh, repent, means somewhat more than that. It means more than merely changing your mind about things. After all, we often use the English word repent to talk about uh, all sorts of other things, such as uh, turning from sins or turning to Christ or even conversion to Christianity. Uh, we were using the word repent a little earlier in our meeting uh, when we confessed uh, together in just, that's that, just that kind of way. But I think it's helpful for you to know that the, the Greek word behind the word repent in verse 2 doesn't directly mean any of those other things. It basically just means change your mind. Maybe regret wants you, what you once thought but change your mind. It perhaps implies other things down the line, and, and you can see that uh, John does indeed 
go on to talk about that. In verse 8, for example, he talks about fruits worthy of repentance, uh, which are what you do having changed your mind about something. I think we'll find it helpful tonight to take things step by step in the order that Matthew gives them. So then, change your mind. But why should we change our minds? What makes John... Credible. What makes John more credible than Harold Camping, for example? Why should we listen to John, uh, but not to him? Well, you can see that the claim here is that John was a prophet and a herald of the Lord himself, announced in advance hundreds of years before by the great prophet Isaiah. And look, says Matthew, John is even dressed like a prophet, just so you can't miss it. Uh, If you look at what the prophet Elijah was wearing in uh, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, for example, uh, you'll see that this is pretty much the uniform of a prophet. This is what you want to wear if you want to say, I am a prophet. And I guess you don't take up residence in the wilderness, uh, as John has done, and eat insects, you know, unless you're serious about something. Um, Those clothes, for one thing, must have been pretty itchy. And I'm not quite sure what's involved in getting hold of wild honey, uh, but I imagine the risks are high. Now, it, sure, he could have been just eccentric, but he could be a prophet. Now, that is worth looking into, because if he is a prophet, then the words he has spoken are the very words of God. And if he is the one spoken of by Isaiah, then coming soon is the Lord himself. Okay then, so we've heard this message. It's basically to change our minds about things. And we're at least uh, listening carefully to this very unusual messenger. But what is it that we should change our minds about? Well, says John, change your mind about the future. Look again at what he says in verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is near. Or, Or more precisely, I guess, that the kingdom of the heavens is near. Let's take this step by step. First of all, what exactly is the kingdom of the heavens? Well, it's not entirely new language in the Bible. Listen to this from Daniel chapter 2, for example. In the time of those kings, says Daniel, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the the kind of picture that that John is painting, building upon the the, the prophet Daniel. Uh, We have the heavens, the heavenly realm, uh, where God reigns unopposed. And then there's also the earth, uh, the earthly realm, where where we are. Uh, Which, of course, God also created, and of course, God also reigns over, uh, but he isn't recognized as he should be. And he certainly doesn't reign unopposed. Now, we need to be clear about what's going on here. We're not talking about physical spaces here, as if the the heavenly realm were somewhere up there, physically. Uh, You may know that when Yuri Gagarin was the first man in space, the the Russian president, uh, Khrushchev, made the mocking comment, uh, Gagarin flew into space, but didn't see any God there. Someone wisely commented that if Gagarin had just, just stepped outside his spacecraft for a moment... Uh, He would have seen God soon enough. (laughs) But we need to know that that is not what Daniel 
or Matthew or John are really talking about here. These are not physical spaces. The heavenly realm is not part of the physical universe as we know it. But the important thing to pick up here is that these, are, these realms, these realms are opposed to one another. The heavens and earth are opposed. But a time is coming, Daniel said it already, and John is repeating him, a time is coming when the God who rules unopposed in the heavenly realm will crush the kingdoms that oppose him in the earthly realm. And that will be a very good thing. You know, it sounds quite violent. It's quite warlike language, isn't it? But it will be a very good thing. It will be a reuniting of the heavens and the earth. And I don't know whether you knew this, but this is actually what we're praying for uh, when we ask your kingdom come, as we did earlier in the Lord's Prayer. And you can see that John the Baptist is claiming here the kingdom of the heavens is near. But what does it mean to be near? Now, you need to know that that's actually quite a big and difficult question. One of my friends at Moore College in Sydney wrote his entire PhD on the word near in the verse that's parallel to this one in in Mark's Gospel. I'm not joking, he really did. In fact, this is one of the big questions of Matthew's Gospel. How or when exactly is this going to happen? What does it mean for the kingdom of the heavens to be near? And actually, it's a question that, that doesn't get fully answered until right at the end of Matthew's account. It's an ongoing issue. For the moment, we just need to pick up the urgency that John is expressing here. The kingdom of the heavens is near. The coming kingdom should urgently impact how you think about things, what you do, how you behave. But from what John goes on to say, he seems to be thinking at the time, this is urgent because it's near in time. It's soon. And we should take it with deadly seriousness because it's going to involve nothing less than the judgment of the world. And we can pick that up from his little speech to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, Verse 10, for example, where he says, the axe is already at the root of the tree. Otherwise, what John is doing here is he's thinking about the future the way we might expect him to think about the future, as a righteous Jew who knows his scriptures well, and in particular knows that Psalms 1 and 2 very well, which we had read to us earlier. And John begins by telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees and us about this coming judgment. Verse 7, for example, this is what he says to them, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. There is a coming wrath, that is the coming righteous anger, justice, the justice of God, at those who have ignored or despised or opposed his rule. And the very vivid picture that John uses here is in verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The coming judgment will be like an axe man sweeping through an orchard, inspecting the trees for fruit, cutting down and burning the dead and fruitless ones. And uh, I think we can feel some of the immediacy of this here. The sharp blade of the axe is already at the base of a tree. It's cutting into the wood already, marking it perhaps, ready for the man to swing and 
chop. But next, having told us about this, this coming judgment, John tells the, the Pharisees and Sadducees about the person who's coming to execute this judgment. So this is in verse 11. I baptize you with water, he says, for repentance. But after me will come one who's, not, who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will baptize with Holy Spirit and fire, not water. John's probably thinking about a, a separation here in the judgment. Some will be baptized with Holy Spirit and live. Some will be baptized with fire and won't. And that separation is what's picked up in what follows. John says this, his winnowing fork is in his hand. Again, can you pick up the immediacy of this? It's in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And that should say there, instead of winnowing fork, winnowing shovel, which helps us to understand what's happening here. And again, it's a a very vivid image. We have a threshing floor, and there are two piles on this threshing floor. Uh, There's one pile of wheat, and there's one pile of chaff, the dry, scaly, useless, useless casings that have already been separated from the useful seeds of wheat grain. But now is the time for the threshing floor to be cleared. So this powerful figure takes up his winnowing shovel and into the barn goes the wheat, into the fire goes the chaff. And we can imagine the whoosh of flame as the chaff burns up. Now given that this is what John was saying about the nearness of the kingdom of heavens, and uh, the severe judgment that's going to separate uh, the, the wicked from the righteous, the, the fruitful from the unfruitful, uh, we shouldn't be surprised when we look at what the people all around were doing. Verse 5, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. In other words, as these people face up to the reality of the, the kingdom, the nearness of the kingdom, the reality of judgment, it does seem that they're also facing up to how unprepared they are. This is very interesting. I think this is where this should really impact us here. You see, I imagine, I imagine there were many people uh, before this in Judea not really thinking very much about the future judgment. Um, Perhaps there were many people then, just as there are many people today, saying, well, you know, it's not something that I think about every day, but it'll it'll be all right probably, I'm okay. I'm a a reasonably decent person, I'm I'm all right. Um, I come across many, many people today who are still saying things like that. I'll be all right, I'm not quite as bad as those people over there. Uh, In fact... Here in the Jordan, maybe they were saying, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not as bad as those Gentiles. Certainly not as bad as them, I'll be all right. Uh, or perhaps there are, there are many people back then, relatively godly people, who, who believed in the, in, the, in the truth of a future judgment, uh, but it wasn't really impacting their everyday lives. And I imagine today, again, that you know, many of us here in that category I wonder if I fall into that 
category. You know, we, we talk the talk, we say the creeds, we're happy to say that line in the creeds about the judgment coming, but it's not that real to us. It's not a future that impacts our decisions very powerfully. It's not a future that really matters. But look what happens when the, with, when the future judgment becomes real to these people. When the nearness of judgment is preached as convincingly as John is preaching it here. Well, people really move. You know, they really get their skates on. You know, they motor out into the desert. Um, in this case, all the way into the desert to be baptised. Um, and it's a remarkable thing that they go and do. They go and undergo the kind of cleansing ritual that an outsider, a Gentile, might go through to become one of God's people. Um, it's, it's all as if to say, we know that we're very unprepared for this. We do not deserve to be here. We do not deserve to be in God's land. We're going to go out to the boundaries again. It's as if to say, yes, we, we accept that we have not led fruitful lives. It's as if to say, we have sins that may well put us in the wrong pile on that threshing floor. It's as if to say, Lord, have mercy on us. We've changed our minds. And we desperately see that we need to be washed. But if John is right, you know, if all of this is right, then surely getting baptised like this is the very least they could do. And of course it's also what the Pharisees and Sadducees should have done too. Now these are the, uh, the people of the religious elite and establishment, both informal and formal. Two groups who would normally not get on with each other at all. Now what are they doing here? That's interesting, isn't it? Matthew doesn't really tell us. But whatever the reason for their presence um, at this event, there was something phony about them. There was something about their lives that simply didn't fit with believing the judgment was about to begin. And John sees it at once. He picks them out of the crowd. Well, 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 says John. Who have we here? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Come on, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, live lives in keeping with, with believing this, this nearness of the kingdom. And do not think that somehow you don't have to. Don't think that you can say to yourselves, I've got the pedigree. We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, from out of these stones, God can raise up children from Ab- for Abraham. They were reacting in part, I guess, but they weren't reacting as wholeheartedly as they should. But what about us? As we listen into this, as we listen into John's preaching, what should we do? Well, if what John says is true, presumably you should do this likewise. You know, if what John said is true, then there, there will be nowhere to hide in the coming judgment. Uh, the only option for us would uh, to also come clean about our rebellion and fault before God, uh, confessing our sins. Uh, we'd be wanting to be to do anything we could, I'd have thought, anything to show our allegiance uh, to the Lord and his coming kingdom. Anything we could do to be less like those Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, You know, more fruitful and less choppable. 
uh, more wheat-like and less chaff-like, desperately hoping to end up in the right pile on that threshing floor. But it all seems a bit desperate, doesn't it? Uh, to say the least. None of that, none of the things that these people are doing seems like a safe preparation for the thing that John is describing. The, the, the thing that John is saying is going to happen very soon. None of that seems like adequate preparation. There's a scene in the fourth and hopefully final Indiana Jones film uh, where the aged hero is running away from his enemies and he stumbles into a town in the middle of the Nevada desert. And the scene be- begins quite well as it uh, slowly dawns on Indiana that he's, all is not as it seems here. There are, as he looks around this town, no real people. There are only what look like crash test dummies. They're arranged in, as if in the middle of everyday work and play. And as the sirens sound in the, desert, de- in the distance, he realizes that he's in the middle of a, of a nuclear test site. And this is a nuclear test town. Uh, but then it gets a very silly. Where does he hide? Well, he does his best, I guess. He hides in a refrigerator. And in the film, he survives. He survives with barely a scratch. In reality, of course, he would be vaporized in a second, along with the rest of the town, is a very silly moment in a very, very silly film. <laughs> now, we may delude ourselves that, that we might somehow survive the coming wrath, this coming fire, on our own. But I have to say, I have to say that it's about as realistic as Indiana Jones hiding in a fridge. But wait a second, the chapter's not over yet. There's another scene. And it's such an important scene that we're also going to look at it next week too and in more detail, and I'll be able to say more then, but I don't have to, time to tonight. But it's very important that we look at it now as well. You see, if we left things as they were, as they are, we would be left with some very incomplete ideas about the future. You see, what Matthew is saying in this next scene is effectively, change your minds again. The way he puts it, it's almost an anticlimax until we see how marvelous it is. Verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Now, I want you to notice, John knew for sure who this was, who this person was. Uh, You remember from the previous verses that John was preparing, was ready for a baptizer, you know, one who's going to come and baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire. And here he recognizes a baptizer. I need to be baptized by you, says John. So this is the one, this is the greater one, that John has been expecting. But I also want you to notice there's no axe. There's no fire. There's no winnowing shovel. And everything's the wrong way around. It's very strange, isn't it? Jesus has come to be baptized by John. 
All the wrong way around. No no wonder John tried to deter him. Why would the one he was preparing for do this? Well, says Jesus, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. This is what Jesus says. It is necessary to do this to fulfill righteousness. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, that's a way of saying, this is necessary to progress God's will, to progress God's purposes, plan for the world through Jesus. And now uh, certain things should start to fall into place for us. You see, we already know at this point in the Gospel, in broad outline, what God's plan for the world is through Jesus. God wants Jesus to save his people from their sins, to be God with them. We saw that uh, last time from the end of uh, chapter 1. And I think that explains what Jesus is doing here. He has not yet come to cut down fruitless sinners and cast them into the fire. He has not yet come to burn them up in a furnace like chaff. He has come to save them. And he's beginning by doing this. He's beginning by joining with the ranks of those who came to the Jordan, confessing their sins. He's getting alongside those sinners, much as he will do later in the Gospel, getting alongside the tax collectors and sinners. And it's that identification with sinners that's finally going to save them. We're going to we come back to this at the end of Matthew's Gospel at the cross. Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, as Isaiah puts it, and he bore the sin of many. And that numbering of the transgressors begins right here in chapter 3 of the Gospel. Now I hope you'll begin to see just how extraordinary all of this is. We may liken what John was doing in his preaching earlier in the chapter to the situation in an unruly classroom where where the teacher has left for a short while. You'll remember this from back at school, or maybe even now. Uh, The class has gone wild. At least this is how it was in my school. Maybe not all schools are like this. The class has gone wild. People are jumping about, throwing things, bullying things, destroying things. Someone's being hung out of the window by their feet. You know, somebody's started a fire in one of the corners, perhaps. You can tell what my school was like. Uh, Well, John is like the boy standing at the door, uh, shouting, watch out, he's coming back. We could even liken the Pharisees to the prefects in that class who who don't listen and think they can just get away with it just because they're prefects. But if if that's the right sort of image, then the arrival of the teacher is a surprise. He doesn't come the way anyone expected. You know, it's as if he's just sort of slipped in at the back unannounced and he's quietly sitting with some of the other students perhaps the wildest of them he's sitting notice with them gradually we might imagine that he would be recognized it's an extraordinarily risky thing for him to do it could be hugely costly but it turns out to be the only way to turn things around that's the kind of thing that Jesus has come to do 
Now, there are preachers in every generation who make the mistake of copying John the Baptist at the beginning of this chapter and saying the end is nigh. Judgment is just about to happen. Harold Camping is just the latest of them and doubtless there will be more and more. Uh, But what these preachers have failed to see is the implications of this baptism scene with Jesus. The The fact that John had to change his mind, even John, Even John had to change his mind when he actually met the one he was preparing for. Now John was right to say there will be separation and judgment. He was right to say there shall be justice. But he was unclear about the timing. Something else, something wonderful happens first. Salvation from sins. So yesterday, the world did not end. The judgment did not come. In some ways, I guess, we should be disappointed. Evil will continue. Injustice and wickedness will continue. Suffering will continue. And the world will continue to groan with it. And yet we should also think How amazing. Because that means that Jesus is is still doing the work that he begins here in Matthew chapter 3. He is still at work today, right now, saving people from their sins before the judgment comes. There is a window of opportunity. There is a breathing space for us. There is a real opportunity in Jesus to find a true refuge from the coming storm.